0: Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv and I'm joined here today by Omar, serial entrepreneur and investor. So Omar, can you tell us a little bit about Practice Unbound? That was your first startup and you were co-founder and chief product officer there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was a terrific experience kind of between around 2016. I found a GP and an administrator doing something a little bit innovative in a GP practice. So then we spun that out, but we basically found it, found a way to shift some of the workload away from doctors Mm -hmm. by upskilling administrators, letters that come through uh, hospitals and other different types of healthcare services. And what we found is we could shift 80% of that workload, do it more effectively to a better quality. And that basically saved about 40 minutes per day for each GP. So big success story, very impactful. And then it got backed by the UK government. So a £45 awesome. million pound budget was created for us.
0: Wow. And I think you told me something really crazy, that you were in 75% of hospitals in the UK?
1: So 25%, 25% of GP percent practices. of GP practices. Yeah, but we did that in 18 months.
0: So. Wow. Because usually every practice is like kind of, well, each trust has different sets of practices. So how do you...
1: Yeah, so the, so trust tends to be kind of hospitals okay. and community services and things like that. The GP practices are kind of the other side of the equation. So they're separate? So sep- yeah, separate mm-hmm. kind of side of the healthcare system. Interestingly, all GP practices are private organizations. They're all privately oh, wow. owned, which not many people know about. But they are very much, there's about 7,000 of them, right? So wow. they're all kind of individual little businesses, which is why I think some organizations tend to kind of steer away from them because they don't want to necessarily go around knocking on the doors.
0: How, how did you scale the 25% of all GP practices? Yeah.
1: So we, we actually acquired a GP practice where we mm. were. And what that meant was we were able to really work closely with them. Um, mm. And that allowed us to be able to build high quality product yeah. um, that was slick and sexy. Yeah. It, you know, it worked. It looked great. Yeah. And we proved that it could work. So I could prove on average I can save every doctor 40 minutes per day, which was highly impactful. And because we had the evidence base, we were able to then take that to the UK government mm. um, and that enabled them to go, yeah, we like that. So then they include that as part of the GP forward view.
0: Oh, so the government is the one that pushed this out to the yeah, GP practices. So, so
1: we got the UK government to create a budget which mm. was just part of a 45 million pound budget, but it was part of a bigger 2.6 billion pound program that was happening at the time.
0: And how long were you working on Practice Unbound? Were you there from like day one?
1: Yeah, so I actually arrived. So the GP and the administrator that I described earlier, they'd already kind of started working on it Mm. and they tested it in a couple of GP practices. Uh, But what it was, they used to have a a trainer who would go into a GP practice and spend two weeks immersed in the GP practice to be able to upskill everyone else. And so I took that concept, validated the amount of saving and the time, the impact that it could have, but then also digitized it. Yeah. So turned it into a full kind of e-learning program and course backed by integrating into clinical systems so we can prove every day the amount of letters that would be that were processed through this new approach.
0: Interesting. And how many years did you spend on it? So you got the 45 million from the government.
1: So worked on it. And then I think within six months we, were, we got the, wow. the kind of the bigger uh, pot created. In total, I was there for about, I think, two, two and a half years.
0: Oh, well, That's not long at all. Yeah. And you left there or did they exit?
1: No, so we did something unusual. So the business ended up becoming a, a not-for-profit social enterprise. Okay. So we noticed that a lot of the, the community down in Brighton, services, clinics, etc. are really struggling. So mm. we decided that we were going to use the revenue that we were making, which was significant at the time, and put that yeah. back into the community. So I didn't get the, the kind of bigger, classic, typical exit that one might expect. Yeah. But it was definitely the, the right thing to do.
0: Interesting. So you converted the startup into a not for profit. Did you have investors at that point?
1: No, so we did this all uh, kind of bootstrapped, so we didn't oh, we didn't wow. take any additional funding. You didn't
0: take any funding to get to that point. And has it grown since or
1: yeah, so we left a little bit of a legacy. So we ended up so the product's mm. still live and, and running. The organization now sells a couple additional more products. And we're in about a third of GP practices in the country. Wow. So still there, still impactful.
0: But you're not a part of it anymore? No,
1: not, not a part of that. Got HE Feet, kind of moved, decided to go into the NHS itself, actually. So I spent six months in the NHS, ended up working on the telehealth program in 2019. Mm. So just before the pandemic hit, I was actually put on and worked on evaluating telehealth services across London which was very fortuitous timing because the pandemic was about to hit. So,
0: yeah. Like what yeah, are the so, big so, differentiators so the, that make something good or bad? Absolutely. Telehealth? So
1: people go out and build attractive looking products, right? yeah. but they don't necessarily think about the implementation of, mm. the, of the work. And I think that's kind of the expertise that I really bring is how do you actually get this implemented? Well,
0: Oh, like bad by, user by interface functions. design,
1: it's, it's even, it's, it's just poor onboarding actually. Oh. Um, some of it is the interface design, but some of these, Tools look fantastic, right? But they're just not implemented well. Mm-hmm. They aren't onboarded well into the journey.
0: So then they kind of just like rage quit because they're like,
1: yeah, it's kind yeah. of yeah. Like here's an email with 20 different attachments of 10 different documents, and mm-hmm. you've got to fulfill you know fill out each one, and it, it's just messy. The process to onboard yeah. is quite messy. Also, there isn't always often enough attention paid to the impact of the, the product.
0: What do you mean by that
1: we're not measuring we're not evaluating properly we're not Mm. actually measuring whether this is going to save time money and make a difference to the people on the ground so at practice unbound for example Mm. the way that we managed to get people to purchase the product was we used to say to people would you like time back to go to the toilet during the day and that and you know people understood that because that because it's
0: directly linked that, into the impact. Yeah,
1: they have real experience of not being have time to go to the toilet because they're seeing patient mm. after patient, sixty patients an hour. Okay, maybe not quite that, but
0: yeah. Was your background in medicine or
1: no? So I'm a biomedical scientist. Yeah. So kind of in that sphere, but knew very early on that I was kind of more drawn towards the entrepreneurial side of things.
0: What kind of triggered that?
1: Interestingly, I was in a lecture at Warwick University. And I listened to this lecture and it was all about dialysis machines. And it was my first kind of foray into, wow, there's companies out there that develop and design these amazing products that save lives. So it got me really mm. interested in thinking about the future of biomarkers and yeah. how, and then that kind of took me towards, yeah, kind of healthcare startup world. So I did work in a healthcare startup kind of before I did my own startup. So it did give me some good experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, what to do
1: and what not to do.
0: You killed it, like two and a half years, and you guys reached 25% of GP clinics. That's crazy. And you mentioned you're kind of, you know, now investing in companies and working, you know, alongside accelerator program.
1: Yeah. So, so after, so after the startup did the NHS piece, and then I decided to learn a bit more about venture capital and also decided to learn a bit more about what other products and services are out there, types of innovations. So I spent the next couple of years throwing myself into that world. Yeah, uh, Started to collate a, a coalesce a group of people, clinicians, Fortune 500 CEOs, and we collectively invest in health tech startups, early stage, globally, not just in the UK, mm-hmm. but most of them have been in the UK, up to 150,000 pounds. That's kind of been our thing. And that's yeah, been really What's good. What's that
0: group called? Harbour. Harbour. Yeah,
1: so Harbour. And more recently have been kind of drawn back towards the primary care side Mm -hmm. and have been kind of experimenting the last year with designing a new type of accelerator, which is basically an organisation that finds interesting innovations and then tries to accelerate them and scale them. Is this
0: Um, like through publications or...?
1: No, so we... uh, The way that we're thinking about it... so So typically... A startup would join an accelerator and they would get given access to workshops and some content. And cash. And often not cash. <laughs> okay. Sometimes cash, but then sometimes you have to invest the money back into the startups asked to pay it back oh, in to pay that. for the services and yeah. that, which is which is not a model that we particularly want to use. But often with these accelerators, like I said, workshops, potentially some desk space and sometimes they take equity. Mm. What we're planning on doing is helping them actually find product market fit. And Ooh. helping them to actually make revenue. So what we yeah, so what we've done <laughs> is we've partnered with a one million patient GP practice group. That's about a hundred GP practices across across the Midlands and the North of the UK. And what that means is we've got access to a million patients, four hundred doctors. Yeah. Over a thousand number of staff.
0: Sounds like the best accelerator ever. Right. So if you're an early
1: stage startup, what you want is you want to be able to test and pilot and validate your product. Yeah. So we give you a team that do that for you, and then we also, by the end of the six months, nine months, we scale you across the estate, which means that you join the accelerator, you're in one percent of the UK market, and also we are paying customers. So the practices are going to commit to paying you for those products and services. If they work.
0: So are you going to take like a commission kind of approach?
1: For the accelerator itself? Yeah. No, so our model is we would like to take some equity and yeah. we think that's fair because actually we are giving real value, right? We're giving yeah. you too many pounds of revenue, which is insane. We're helping you scale from five mm. practices to 100 in six months. Yeah. So we think it's fair to take equity, but we are also donating the equity to the local communities and the patients we serve. So Which we're trying donating
0: to, equity. How does that work?
1: Yeah, well, we're still trying to figure out the mechanisms.
0: I feel like if you're gonna help people generate revenue, you could just say like straight off, like five years, we take twenty percent commission on all your cash, and then that could be used in the community. So what's the community gonna mm, do with like not point not one percent?
1: It, it's interesting. So you're talking equity. about royalties and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I mean we. We do want to help the startups go beyond the 1 million patients, and we've got another mm. 3 million patients that we can help scale them into, that are yeah. people that basically follow our lead. Yeah, it's an interesting model. I think we'll look into that. Uh, what excites us, though, is if the va- we're going to be driving the valuation for these startups, right?
0: Mm, um, that's and true. that
1: means that VC money is attra- becomes more attracted to primary yeah. care, um, so we hopefully will be able to see an exit yeah, um, in a few years' time, which means that more significant money can kind of go back into the community. Um, and it enables us to be able to open up new services, be a bit more sustainable.
0: Um, if you keep turning everything you build into a nonprofit, like how do you have money to invest in startups? Do you like raise a fund or something?
1: No, it depends. Like I, longer term, what we would love to do is we would love to attach a VC fund to this accelerator, mm. right? And that means that we can also put in
0: cash injection
1: into the companies at the start of the program. So that would be, you know, that would be something that we'd love to do. And eventually what I'd love to do is kind of open up more chapters around the world. So a million patients in Kenya, a million patients in the US, in India, in South Korea, um, and then truly create a global primary care accelerator.
0: Why do you think most VCs are just not very good at helping founders get to that product market fit.
1: Yeah, I think there is a disparity between kind of European investors and US investors, Mm -hmm. right? So I think the stats are something like 92% of people in VC in in US have operator-founder experience, whereas in Europe it's flipped to about 8%, Mm. which is significantly different. I think that just means that, you know, VCs don't necessarily have access to customer don't have access to the connections because they haven't necessarily been yeah. through the kind of founder process. So that potentially might play a part. You,
0: have you had a moment in the last like few years where you've been like helping startups where you really feel like you made a difference?
1: Yeah, I, I think I will only work with a company if I feel like I'm making a difference. Mm. Um, there's a couple at the moment that I've been so passionate about and I feel so engaged with, not in the primary care space. And it's incredible to be part of that journey and to be accepted into that kind of family when you're earlier stage yeah the challenge i find sometimes is i do i have a history of wanting to get a bit more involved but i'm as i'm getting older and doing more things i'm finding that's not necessarily going to be possible longer term so it's what about do you mean how do i add value quickly and effectively but not you know get in the way of the founders
0: yeah i mean i think it's like what if you give advice to someone and they follow it super rigorously and it was the wrong thing
1: yeah, absolutely. That's part of the. That's the risk, right? But I think that's okay. That's not a. That's not a problem. What that means is that uh, us as a team, whether that's a founder or an advisor, are moving fast. We're making decisions based on the best information that we had at the time. Mm. So you know, you can't kick yourself for it. Yeah. More than do retrospectives to understand.
0: Yeah, what happened? What
1: happened? But there's no blame here.
0: How many companies have you seen fold in the last year?
1: Yeah, good question. So I've not seen any within my portfolio. Mm. I just recently had my first exit, which is fun. Uh,
0: Within your portfolio? Within my portfolio, but
1: nothing outrageous. basically made my money back, which is fine. Mm. And then I've got another one, hopefully coming later this year, which I'm very excited about. So hopefully that should be a, a very good returner. But I'm still very early on in my career. I've only been investing for two years. So it's gonna take a while.
0: Yeah. And what's next? You said you're looking at building another kind of startup.
1: Yeah, I decided that I want to be a bit more creative with my time, Mm -hmm. Um, and that means how how do I go about and, and do that? So I am fascinated by the intersection of science and art, and I love the idea that you can start to really play around with that and use it as an opportunity to also educate the population around some of the cool stuff that's happening in the scientific space at the moment. So I am hoping to launch a bit of a side project at the moment, but we'll kind of wait and see. The idea is we're going to be taking samples of people's DNA and we're going to turn that into super personalized artwork. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of where we're going. It's a little bit bonkers, but I'm quite excited about it.
0: Are you doing that with like the co-founders of your first company or?
1: No, this one's kind of all me at the moment. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah, but it's it's kind of my foray into the artistic world. Yeah. um, Leveraging some of the scientific background that I've got and some of my startup experience. But yeah, very exciting. It's called Spilled Inc. Hoping to launch very soon.
0: And I guess you've seen like a lot of companies you'd probably advise your portfolio companies as well. What do you think is like the number one thing to do when building a healthcare startup?
1: Yeah, really focus in on the value add that you're saying you're saying you're going to be making. I think this is yeah. there's a lot of companies out there that, that don't necessarily ascribe the kind of value very well and evidence it very well. And when they do, the problem sometimes becomes the value that you're adding isn't necessarily a problem that the payer
0: Mm -hmm.
1: has. So then you get that battle. And it does make me think that actually, you know, not all innovations are going to be VCable. And I guess the solution there is to go, okay, well, the things that aren't going to be attractive to VCs might be attractive to angel groups, or they might be attractive towards grants that might be available out there. So it's just about maybe also... Helping founders understand what is the right, you know, are they going to be a billion trillion pound company or actually are they building something that's going to be a solid, you know, money making machine yeah. that does okay? Not every company has to be or should be really a billion pound company, right?
0: Do you see a lot of like expectation misalignment that causes like people stress in your portfolio or in the companies you've talked to?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, that's a very good point because. What you end up seeing is mm-hmm. startups founders spend half of their time trying to go and raise money from the VCs, yeah, um, and it becomes very challenging. And I think, officially, if you took away some of that because you know demonstrated that's not necessarily the right track for you, yeah, um, then I think we're onto something um, where we're giving a lot of back time back to founders who can go away and do something, you know,
0: better than fundraising, better with racing. their time, yeah. What do you think is the number one thing not to do? And can you share a story around that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very difficult question. Having the right people around you is really important. Um,
0: so don't hire random people. I,
1: yeah, well, but the thing is, like, I, I've also been recently challenged with this because actually yeah. sometimes you don't have to go away and hire. People expect to hire sometimes the best talent out there, but mm. you, know, you have to go and pay double market rate if you want to do that. It's also possible to hire someone and mentor them properly mm. and really build that loyalty and but you've got to give them time and again if, you, if you're not spending half your time fundraising you can really focus on mentoring and building your team and actually that's the full-time C- job of a ceo right is so making, mentoring
0: and building it
1: really should be leading the team and ensuring that everyone's got clear direction that bit's very difficult but it does start by having good people around you that you trust that mm. work hard that work smart and I think sometimes it requires you to have a couple of experiences of going through startups and whether that's your own or other people's to be able to get a good sense of your sense for people that kind of pattern, gut, r- pattern, gut feel pattern recognition yeah. uh, of whether you're going to be able to do well with
0: you know working with them mm. I don't know I feel like you never know really until you actually work with them but then i also feel like now i just have this thing where it's like if it's not like i will die without you being here then it's probably wrong
1: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, never get to that point that's a red flag right what do you mean well i mean if you're in a situation where the company can't operate with that that person without that person then you're in trouble right Yeah. Because something's not quite. quite.
0: Yeah. But I also feel like if they're not adding that much value, like if I feel like I could do their job better, then it's Mm. definitely the wrong person. And then for me, I feel like it was hard to learn how to let go. And I don't know how you learned how to do that. Because I guess, like, as your old company grew, there's a lot less you actually do. And for me that journey of learning how to like not want to just do everything was kind of hard Mm.
1: yeah it requires it's impossible to clone yourself Mm. (laughs) something i tried uh no Uh, no. (laughs) it's impossible to clone yourself Mm. so instead what you want to do is mentor people and then people will i mean i still have people that practice unbound who you know every six months or every year will check in Mm. um, and will give me an update about their life what they're doing and that tells me that i was i did myself proud and then I built the kind of relationship where people will want to continue to interact with me.
0: When you say mentor people is that like weekly check-ins or how did you kind of frame that?
1: Yeah I mean I, so I like going for walks I think that's a really yeah good thing to do at any occasion even now when I'm meeting founders or other investors I'll suggest going for a walk and a talk mm-hmm. uh, much better than sitting in a cafe. It's about giving time and like getting to understand them and their own personal life Mm. i'm not one of those people that tries to separate their kind of personal life from their work life i do try to bring the two together i think it's a more honest you and then by building that kind of strong personal connection means people will want to work hard for you and will bring themselves fully into the mission that you're on
0: what happens when you build a strong personal connection with someone and then you have to let them go have you had that situation? And how did you kind of cope with that? Yeah,
1: As in learning the fire, like yeah. getting rid of them. Yeah, so I guess it's important to, um, so it's not a one-way conversation. You're mm. both having that conversation to understand why this isn't working. Yeah. And I think if you're an adult about it and you explain it, but also support them to be able to not just, you know, you don't, people don't just onboard well into a company, people also outboard well yeah. into a company. So it's important to kind of, do that really right?
0: What do you mean do it right? Like you you created like a offboarding process?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so just yeah. offboard really well and have a real honest conversation about the reasons why and try to address it so if there are things you think that can change.
0: Is it good to have an honest conversation or is it better to just say cuz like at the point of which someone is like already not going to work out isn't it better to just be like hey strategic decision, you know, like the, the kind of bullshit that people usually say, isn't that better? Because if someone starts saying, hey, actually, we're not very good at X, Y, Z, and that's why this happened, I feel like people would take personal offense to that.
1: So it depends how you approach it. My view is if it comes as a shock to someone, it tells me that I haven't spent enough time. Yeah. They're, they're not aware that they're not doing something well. Right. Yeah, And if they're aware that things aren't going to work out, then really, you know, we should be supporting them to move on to the next role and helping them find what the next role might be. Yeah, uh, And actually that might be, you know, that might be within the team, but it's a slightly different role or maybe it's somewhere else because actually they don't have energy for what we're working on and the mission of the company that they're in at the moment. So I don't personally like to kind of let those kinds of conversations to come up as a shock to people. Mm. Um, so I do think that if have those conversations early,
0: so like the second you notice something, you just start talking about yeah. it.
1: And what you might find is people adapt their behavior, right? Mm. Um, and they learn and they grow and they thank you more for it because they've evolved and have improved. But
0: that doesn't really align with this whole like Silicon Valley, higher, slow, fire, fast thing where people say like the second you see something like fire. Yeah. So I don't know if that's...
1: Depends if you think the Silicon Valley route is the right route, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Yeah,
0: Did you always have this ability to kind of navigate these awkward conversations or is that something that you picked up?
1: No, it's taken me a very long time. To be honest, I'm not sure I was very good at it when I was running, when, you know, when I was in I'm practice. Some brand. At it.
0: yeah.
1: uh, it's something that I've learned a lot more mm. since, you know, over the last three years, really. Mm. Um, With
0: your investor work.
1: Yeah, I think so, because you end up meeting so many people, right? And you have Um, to say
0: no, but in a nice way.
1: Correct. Uh, Also, you invest in a company and then you'll find that there are some awkward, weird dynamics happening um, Mm. with, you know, difficult founder tensions or employees. So you learn to help a founder think through those things. And I guess it's helpful because you're a step removed. So you have the objectivity. So you do tend to practice those skills.
0: Yeah. And then in terms of like the key components to reaching product market fit, what do you think is like the equation?
1: I think it's a combination of properly addressing and addressing a problem that also that people on the ground using it have. Mm. Again, that kind of problem. Sometimes that exists between kind of the problem of the person who's going to be using the product is not necessarily the problem of the person paying for the product to just making sure very clearly, what the value proposition for different people, different stakeholders. Being able to build a product that onboards very well, you know, again, across all the different stakeholders.
0: I find the speed so difficult because in healthcare, you can't really build and test and iterate in the same way as in not healthcare. Because, like, in not healthcare, you can build something in a day and be like, use it, try it, test it, Mm. like tell me what you think, and then just like measure usage after one day, right? But in healthcare, you really can't deliver something, especially B2B, that is like shit, like you just can't.
1: Yeah. And I think, so my view on that is, um, so it depends what the product is. If it's a, so I really like kind of your not necessarily patient facing products and services and tools, right? Mm. So I like some of the things that are back office, administrative, yeah. you know, can save time, money, effort, energy. So that those are kind of a lot easier and simpler yeah. to implement. Also easier and simpler to get paid for, which yeah. I find. But I agree with you. Like healthcare is a difficult not to crack, right? It's why mm. not many people have cracked it and not many success stories in the healthcare space. So Yeah. But hey, I mean, we like to think we are purposeful people who want to do impactful things in our life. And it feels like a privilege and honor to work in the healthcare space where we feel like we can try and crack that nut, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So do you think you'll go into wanting to build a unicorn now that you've had this like first bite of? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good question. I am regularly and often challenged by some of my friends about mm. this, go away in Omar and build something. I think I'm probably more in the space of my life at the moment where I want to support other founders to be able yeah. to do that. But in the future, I would love to explore how to make an impact in education, actually. So like I'm, I'm really determined around the education piece. So I partially kind of ran a population health management company for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the answer to every question in healthcare tends to be education right? It's about prevention, education. So mm. I would love at some point in my career to kind Build of... Build
0: the ed tech.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I've, I mean, the Practice Unbound was a version of an ed tech company. Mm. I did some work in the Middle East where I was born in Baghdad. So always wanted to do some work in the Middle East. I helped launch a medical academy for, I think, mm. up to 16,000 doctors there in the ed tech space. So like, I always end up coming back to ed tech. So I think longer term, I'd love to kind of explore what that route might look like. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, what's the number one impact you want to leave on the world?
1: I would love to make a difference on, in education to the point where young children are taught uh, about how do I go out and build a business, actually? Because it's, it's funny, right? We admire people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, mm. but we never get taught what it requires to be able to go in and build some of those businesses. So I would love to go and see something that, be part of something that actually helps adapt some of the, the kind of educational program that we've got in this country and around the world and just provides kids with the ability to harness their natural creativity that they've got at young ages yeah. and then start to pull together you know some ideas and some basics that means that they can maybe kind of spin up something quite quickly and they understand you know what venture capital is and how do you go out and build a business like actually yeah. the, some of the core cool things that a lot of us learn as adults but mm. we never really get taught the education system and I think that's a mistake and I think we should think about doing that
0: Awesome So in addition to the Health Creators podcast you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co that includes our vendor selection and CRO databases um, conference selector tool and also investors you should be talking to when you log into healthcreators.co you'll also have direct access to New Root for clinical development and a community of founders building in healthcare